But because of what's coming up this coming week, um, I'm going to visit that subject. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to the book of Esther, we will uh, we will be in there. Whether or not we read it all, um, for, for sake of time, we may not read every scripture, but I'll give you the citations. You can kind of peruse it. I may read. I'll watch the time. I don't want to keep us here all day. Although I don't know why not. But, you know, there are close to 7 billion people currently on the face of the earth. And in America alone, there are over 300,000 of those. 300 million. Thank you. 300 million of those 7 billion. So I dropped three zeros in my... And it wasn't my memory because it is typed out. I three questions come to mind. First, in this sea of humanity, can one person really make a difference? Secondly, does God take notice of you? And third, is your life of any important value? See, to each of these questions, God answers with a resounding yes. No matter how we feel, we may feel inadequate sometimes, but God doesn't see us that way. History is loaded with how one person can make a difference in nations, in states, cities, even the entire world. History is full of people that God worked through. People like you and me. God just has two basic requirements for a person to be used by him to do something significant. One, believe on him. And two, be available to him. It really boils down to those simple requirements. Everything else he'll take care of. All we have to do is believe in him and yield to him and allow ourselves to be used by him. See, at all times, whether we realize it or not, God is at work. And we are important, individually and collectively. We can make a difference in this world, in this state, in this city, or in our homes. From uh, the book on Christian history number six, the section on the Baptists, it, it records this. Helen Barrett Montgomery was both a reflection of the gains made by Baptist women in the 19th century and a precursor of change in the 20th century. A licensed minister, social activist, author, and lecturer, she published a translation of the Greek New Testament and was the first woman president of the Northern Baptist Convention. Her lifelong work for missions included world travel and the presidency of the World's American Baptist Foreign Mission Society and her support of ecumenism led to her involvement in the establishment of what has today become the World Day of Prayer. The only book in the Bible that does not mention God by name in some way, shape, or form is the book of Esther. But no other book shows more clearly how God was at work in the lives of just a few individuals who turned to him. And they were used in mighty ways. A couple of godly people 
made a difference in the life of an entire nation. Now, the Bible teaches us that God will use even one person who is willing to trust him and be available to him. It's through those people that God can change an entire nation or a family or whatever. Do you realize that he, even today, is still looking for Esther's and Mordecai's? People who, like them, who trust in the Lord and are willing to be available to serve him and to do his will. They made a difference, and so can you and I. Now, I've noticed that you already held back. Because I was going to ask, and I'm still going to, we don't want to get bogged down with the traditional cheers and jeers that are associated with the story. So hold that until next week when we have our dramatic readings. Um, and we already explained that we don't have any visitors, so we don't have to, I don't have to explain the, the Charlene already went through that about how we make certain sounds. But next week, and actually Purim begins Wednesday night, but we're going to do our celebration on Shabbat. But first, in Esther chapter 3 is where we're going to begin, beginning at verse 8, we have what I call a great catastrophe. And it says this, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you. To do with them seems good to you. Ouch. Why would the king give in so easily as to agree to destroy an entire group of people? Because he trusted Haman. Because he was his trusted advisor. So he had to know what he's talking about. Okay, so first thing, observation is, Israel was already in captivity. So what could be worse? They were tough times. Life was anything but smooth and carefree. Because of jealousy and hatred of one man towards another man, who, by the way, was Jewish, things would indeed get worse. Mordechai was a godly and fearful, a faithful Jewish man and a hard worker. Haman hated Mordechai because he was so good. His hatred caused him to not only plot Mordechai's death, but also to destroy everyone like him. In other words, all the Jews. In verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordechai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he was disdained to lay hands on Mordechai alone, for he had told him of the people of Mordechai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordechai. The other person in this story, as we already know, is Esther. The book is written by, about her. She was beautiful, not only outwardly, but inwardly. 
She was also Jewish and she was related to Mordechai. But this is something that at that moment the king did not know. But then look at her attitude in verse, back in chapter 2 now, beginning of verse 12, it says, Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerosh after she had completed 12 months preparation, according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared each woman, young woman, went to the king. And she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening, she went. And in the morning, she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordechai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go in to the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, it was called then, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordechai sat within the king's gate. There are so many things that Esther could have complained about at this point, but she didn't. She did whatever she could, whenever she could, and wherever she could. She set her heart to actually love the unlovely. She could have felt insignificant and unimportant, even used. And she could have blamed God for her life, which didn't seem to be very prosperous at this time, and her people's captivity, but she didn't. She could only see the king on certain occasions. The first time took over a year of beauty treatments. Now, side note on that, it's actually been said that Esther had such a a unique beauty that was inherent in her that she really didn't need that year of treatments. She was that beautiful already. But just think how unimportant she could have felt, especially with all the other wives and concubines that this king had. But God was able to take all these difficult circumstances and still do something that turned out to be wonderful. And some would call it even miraculous. In a book called Fresh Illustrations for Preaching and Teaching, uh, from uh, the editors of Leadership Magazine, Greg Asimakopoulos, I'm close enough, said, when complimented on her homemade biscuits, the cook at a popular Christian conference told Dr. Harry Ironside, just consider what goes into the making of these biscuits. The flour itself doesn't taste good. 
Neither does the baking powder, nor the shortening, nor the other ingredients. However, when I mix them all together and put them in the oven, they come out just right. Much of life seems tasteless, even bad. But God is able to combine these ingredients of our life in such a way that a banquet results. So Esther took all the negative things that were going on with her people and she turned them into a positive. She never complained. She never rebelled against the king. Second thing I look at in back in chapter 3, beginning of verse 12, is the godless command, is what I call it. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, satraps, to the governors who were over each province, province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus it was written, and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. So here we see that the the decree finally came. Haman set in motion what he wanted to happen. He wanted to get rid of all the Jews. The king gave him the authority to make that decree, and here it is. Destroy all the Jews. Haman's hatred now finds expression through this decree that, by the way, once it was started, could not be reversed. It could not be changed. It could not be just lined out, redacted. It didn't work that way. The laws of the Medes and Persians were such that no law could be repealed. That was done to make to prevent the making of thoughtless laws normally. Now, was this not a thoughtless law? But yet, it was allowed to go into law. But once it was in, it could not be changed. This is the official policy of the Mede-Persian Empire. Once a law was made, there's no going back. And Daniel, by the way, served under the Medo-Persian Empire as well. And in chapter 6 of Daniel, in verse 8, it says, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law the Medes and Persian, of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, at that time, King Darius signed a written decree. So we see that it's established within that empire. It, once the law is in, sealed with the king's signet ring, it was permanent. So, they cast lots to determine the date. Casting a lot is called Purim. And that date fell on the 13th day of the month. Now, it's presumed that the original writing of this law, 
that happened in that year would have begun on a Sunday. If the month began on a Sunday, rather. And guess what? The 13th would have been Friday the 13th. How ominous, right? Now this godly command allowed for the killers to also get all the plunder from the Jews. And a reversal from King Saul's day, he said he was supposed to have killed all the Amalekites. We read it, Bought you read it this morning. God said go in and kill all of them. But they kept the king. And they kept the best of the livestock. That's not what God said, is it? He said wipe them all out. By the way, if you know, Haman is an Amalekite. He would have never been had they followed God's law, God's word, God's order. Now, at this point, the Jews are about to lose everything. Their lives, their goods. What could go worse? Could it be worse? Well, God, on the other hand, you know these things can't be changed, right? But God is not restricted by man's evil ways and man's laws. And whatever man puts down in writing, he doesn't forget those who turn to him for help. From her book, The Hiding Place, Corey Ten Boom tells about an incident that taught her the principle of giving thanks in all things. If you're not familiar with Corey Ten Boom, look her up. Amazing, amazing testimony. It was during the World War II. Corey and her sister Betsy had been harboring Jewish people in their home. So they were arrested and imprisoned at Ravensbrück Camp. The barracks was extremely crowded and infested with fleas. One morning... They read in their tattered Bible from 1 Thessalonians the reminder to rejoice in all things. Betsy said, Corey, we've got to give thanks for this barracks and here for these fleas. Corey said, no way am I going to give thanks to God for fleas. But Betsy was persuasive and they did thank God even for the fleas. During the months that followed, they found that their barracks was left relatively free and that they could do Bible study, talk openly, even pray in the barracks. It was their only place of refuge. Several months later, they learned the reason the guards never entered their barracks was because of the fleas. So see, there was this, there was this blessing of the fleas. In chapter 4 of Esther, we're going to look at some a good cause. So when Mordecai, beginning of verse 1, learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter voice. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. See, the evil was not a direct result of sin in the lives of the Jewish people. They'd done nothing wrong. So their cause was a good cause to fight for. So the question is, where do you begin to fight? 
Where did they? On their knees. They began to fight by praying. Everyone began to pray. Everyone covered themselves with sackcloth and ashes. So, someone once said, prayer is the roadbed for determination. Prayer should always be our first response. We should seek God not only for deliverance, but direction on how we can be a part of that deliverance. From book on leadership, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse said, It is our business to see that we do right. God will see that we come out right. Next part, in starting at verse 12 of chapter 4, I, I call this good conscience. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And then that famous line, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. See, Because this was not the result of any sin or evil that the Jewish people had done, now it became time to trust in God. What would be out of their control would be in God's control. And that's usually the way God works. What we can do for ourselves, He expects us to do. But what we can't, He will. From uh, a Bible reading on prayer, from Christianity Today, Ron Klug said, After their long and weary exile in Babylon, the people of Israel were set free to return to their own land. Spurred on by Nehemiah, they began to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This aroused the hostility of the pagans around them who threatened to undo their work. The people of Israel took two essential steps. They prayed to God and they posted a guard day and night. Even as they prayed for God's protection and help, they did what they could. They knew that prayer is not a way to avoid responsibility. It is not a shortcut to success without effort. I in some ways liken that to the way our conference was this past weekend. Everybody there, I'm sure, believed that God would keep us protected because we were there to seek Him. We were praising Him. We were praying to Him. So we would assume that He would protect us. But that did not keep the conference organizers from having security personnel there. That's wisdom. That's doing the part that we can do. But not God's part. He'll do His part, but we still have to do what we can do to mitigate the circumstance. And with a good conscience, Esther must gamble her life for all of the Jews. So what does that take? That now takes courage. And beginning at verse 15, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, 
So I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Those who are not familiar with the custom, what she was saying is, even the queen was not allowed to come into the king's presence unless he summoned them. So she risked her life to even approach the king without being called. So she said, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to do it. Time for more prayer before actually stepping into action. Not just praying for the problems, not just praying about what we can do, but to actually do something after we've prayed. So could one young woman make a difference in the life of a nation? Well, we already know the answer to that because we read the book. You bet one woman can do that. But what bravery and confidence Esther had to have had to even listen to Mordecai and step up to the plate, so to speak. She had a good cause and she had a good conscience. And it was boosted by prayer. And that prayer produced that courage in her. We don't need to fear the enemy's schemes if we have a clear conscience. And God was already at work behind the scenes. It's just that nobody saw what he was doing. And that's often true, that when our conscience is clear and we're facing a big mess, we don't see God working. We have to believe that he is working and he plans to work. We just have to remember to seek Him. Do what we can and let Him do the rest. From Illustrations Unlimited, James Hewitt said, told about the story of Paul Harvey's, many of you heard of Paul Harvey and listened to some of his, from his syndicated radio series that uh, was built around a surprise ending. It's about the Westside Baptist Church in Beatrice, Nebraska. Normally all of the good choir people came to church on Wednesday night to practice. And they tended to be early. Well, just before 30 start time, one night, March 1st, 1950, one by one, two by two, they all had excuses why they would be late. One couple couldn't get their car started. And they were supposed to pick up others. So they became late. All 18 choir members, including the pastor and his wife, were late. All had good excuses. At 7.30, the time the choir rehearsal was to begin, not one soul was in the choir loft. This had never happened before. But that night, the only night in history of that church that the choir wasn't starting to practice at 7.30 was the very night that there was a gas leak in the basement of the West Side Baptist Church. At precisely the time the choir would have been singing, the gas leak was ignited by the church furnace, and the whole church blew up. The furnace room was right below the choir loft. Why were they all late? Divine intervention is all I can say. 
divine intervention kept that choir from being there, kept the pastor from being there, and the church exploded. They would have been at the heart of the explosion because it was right underneath them. Esther and Mordecai were determined to do the godly thing. Even though, again, God is not mentioned specifically by name in the book of Esther. But they had to have known that there was a God. They had to have known through history, through tradition, through their culture, who God was and what God could do. Otherwise, let me ask you a question. We read that they prayed and they fasted. Who were they praying and fasting to? So they must have had some knowledge of who God was. The beginning at verse 9 of chapter 5 of Esther. Actually, I have. I'm covering right now chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. First, we have God's call from Esther chapter 6, verse 8. To the king, it was no accident that the king could not sleep that night. Because Esther chapter 6 verse 1 said that that night the king could not sleep. It was no accident that the king requested a bedtime story be read to him. Also in that same chapter and verse it says, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles. And it was also no accident that the king chose to hear stories about his own reign over the kingdom. These things actually happened five years earlier. And they read it before the king. It was also no accident that the story chosen for that moment was when Mordecai had previously saved the king's life. In the second verse of chapter 6. And it says, And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bictana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. It was actually no accident either that the king asked if anything was ever done to reward Mordecai for for this act. And in verse 3 it said, Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? It was also no accident that Mordecai hadn't been rewarded earlier. Because it was for a time such as this that the king hears the story. Although Mordecai, when it happened, he, it seemed like he wasn't properly thanked. But he never complained. The king never realized what happened. This was a case of these two scoundrels, if you will, plotted to kill the king. Mordecai heard of it and he sent word because again you can't go to the king unless you're summoned. He sent word to the king and the king found out but he never found out who blew the whistle until the story is read to him. But God kept the reward for the right moment. Which isn't always the moment we think it should be. The king's servants in chapter 6 verse 3 said to him nothing has been done for him. It was also no accident that Haman just happened to be in the palace that night. No one else was available for the king when he wanted someone important. In chapter 6, verse 4, it says the king says, Who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. 
Remember, he already got the decree he's going to have Mordecai and all the Jews killed. So he already prepared the gallows. He was getting ready to approach the king and said, I want you to have him hanged on the gallows that I made just for him. So the king calls him in. So it was no accident that it was Haman's own pride that cost him his own life. Still been chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. So Haman came in and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man who the king delights to honor? So the king and Haman went to dine with, skipping ahead to uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, uh, to dine with Queen Esther. On the second day at the banquet of wine, the king said again to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases my king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So a king of Hushveros answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Queen Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will ye also assault the queen while I'm in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, Harbonah, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf is standing at the house of Haman. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. So from Illustrations Unlimited, shortly after Dallas Theological Seminary was founded in 1924, it almost came to the point of bankruptcy. All the creditors were going to foreclose at noon on a particular day. That morning, they met in the president's office with Dr. Schaefer for prayer as God would provi- that God would provide. In that meeting was a man by the name of Harry Ironside. When it was his turn to pray, he prayed in his character- characteristic manner. Lord, we know that the cattle on a thousand hills are thine. Please sell some of them and send us the money. While they were praying, a tall Texan with boots and an open collar, stepped up to the business office and said, I just sold two carloads of cattle in Fort Worth. I've been trying to make a business deal, but it fell through. And I feel compelled to give the money to the seminary. I don't know if you need it or not, but here's the check. A little secretary took the check, and knowing how critical things were financially, went to the door of the prayer meeting and timidly tapped. When she finally got a response, Dr. Schaefer took the check out of her hand 
It was exactly the amount of the debt. When he looked at the name, he recognized the cattleman in Fort Worth, and turning to Dr. Ironside said, Harry, God sold the cattle. Again, nothing they could do physically, but they did what they could do. They prayed. They sought God. I mean, most of us have heard of Dallas Theological Seminary. Many of us know people that have graduated from there since this happened. Had that not happened, there would be many pastors, preachers, teachers, rabbis that may have not gotten their education, at least not through Dallas, because it would have been closed down. But now we get to the point where God calls, through the king, he calls for all Israel to defend herself. God would be with them and they would also have to fight. So again, what God can do, he will do. What you can do, you have to do. He's going to deliver their enemies into their hands, but they have to do something. They actually have to fight. So in chapter 8 of Esther, beginning at verse 11, by these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both the little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal, royal horses went out, hastened, and pressed on by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Sushan, the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Sushan rejoiced and was glad. You couldn't reverse the decree to kill the Jews. But you could make a decree that says the Jews don't have to stand back and let you wipe them out that they were allowed to fight back and defend themselves. So we see rejoicing broke out among the Jews. In verse 16 and 17 it says the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. God would vindicate the righteousness of his people. And he still does even today. Many other people actually joined the Jews' suddenly moment when it became obvious that God was on the side of the Jews. The last part of verse 17 in chapter 8 says, Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. How many know that some things are conditional? It just happens that way. And God did have conditions. The Jews did some important things that brought about the success of their deliverance. They gathered themselves together first for prayer, then they gathered together for battle. And you can read on your own verse 2 of chapter 9. They also, they didn't try to fight alone or be separated from others. You know, we can learn a lot from them on that front today. When we try to do things on our own, we try to think, take matters in our own hand, hands, we often fail. There's strength in numbers, as the saying goes. We don't have to fight our battle alone. And the 
only they only killed those who attacked them, no one else. If you recall, the original decree against the Jews was to even kill the little children. Now, what can the little children do to you, except grow up and become men and women? But they were to kill them as well. Well, the Jews did not take that approach. They only attacked those. They only killed those that came at them. The rest they left alone. They didn't seek revenge on their enemies. They sought righteousness. According to Esther 8.11, they were actually permitted to kill women and children. But they didn't. They had compassion on them. I can only imagine they must have thought about themselves. The women and children were part of this decree by Haman. They didn't want to be like their enemy. So they did not go after the women and children. Unless, of course, some of the women came at them with the men, then it's fair game. From the book Men of Integrity, there was a saying that says, Doing an injury puts you below your enemy. Revenging one makes you even with him. Forgiving sets you above him. That's what the Jews did. They forgave those that had nothing to do with the evil desires of Haman and his cohorts. The Jews did something else. They even refused riches, even though they were permitted to keep the plunder. And you can read that in uh, chapter 8, verse 11, and chapter 9, verse 10. They did not take the plunder. Now, three times in those verses, actually verse 15 and 16 as well. Three times it says they left the plunder, which it was, by the way, permitted for them to take. Once you defeat an enemy, you're allowed to take their belongings. But three times it says they they didn't do it. So, but what do you think the plunder was left for? They no doubt left the plunder for the widows and children of their enemies, who they were permitted to kill, but they didn't. By doing that, they were actually ministering to their enemies so they wouldn't starve or be poor themselves. In that culture particularly, women who were widowed and children left fatherless were in danger of destitution without some means of help. But the Jews of that day helped them. Their attitude here is extremely important. It's the same attitude of Mordechai and Esther. Is it any wonder that God was pleased to deliver them? With that kind of attitude of compassion, even towards their enemies, God could not ignore this people or their needs. So then in first two verses of Esther 9, it, it became a day that was marked, that was supposed to be tragic, but it became a day of great blessing. And instead of them being fearful, their enemy became fearful of them. They had a reputation of faithfulness to God. So should we. God has a way of turning horrible things into joyful things. Another story from Illustrations Unlimited. story about a well-renowned concert organist and teacher at Baylor University. Several years ago, she played 
the first full concert on the new pipe organ at the Crystal Cathedral here in Garden Grove, which cost over a million dollars. At the age of 16, she was a piano major at the University of Texas. A sprained wrist interrupted her promising career as a pianist. For six weeks, she could not touch a keyboard. Not wanting to waste the time, she decided to play the organ pedals with her feet. And a new career was born. She said, God has a way to get your attention and say, Hey, I have something better for you to do. So that bad day became a glad glad day for this pianist and for the Jews in Sushan. It became a holiday for them. It was celebrated every year. Now, although we do look at, we understand that Purim is a minor holiday. It's not one of the major holidays. It's still an important one because of what God did for Esther, for Mordecai, and for the entire Jewish nation. And they were supposed to tell it to their descendants and have them celebrate it annually. And they do it still today. Next week, we're going to actually be reading the book of Esther, as Charlene mentioned. And in the reading of the book of Esther, it mentions the ten sons of Haman. And traditionally, and I don't know if anybody's done it. Did you do that one year? In one breath? Recite every, all of their names in one breath. Was the, it became the tradition. It was an indication that God destroyed the ten sons in one moment. And there was a threefold thing that happened here. First, it was fasting. Then there was feasting. Then there became the art and act of giving presents to each other, especially to the poor, to support them, the widows and the children. And finally, the Feast of Purim is evidence of God's faithful care for us, his children. One godly life in a nation can make a difference. It was a celebration of God's power over their enemies, our enemies, and of God's power in the life of a couple of people. Can one person make a serious difference in this world? Yes. If God is with him and God and we and he believes in God and upon God, yes, they can. So, if one person can make a difference like that, just what think think what a multitude of people can do. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you, we bless you, and we just magnify your name for your greatness and your goodness and how you always deliver your people. We know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, so if, as you did with your people back in the time, you will do it for your people here in our time. We pray that you would continually remind us of that so that we cannot forget who you are, what you are, and what you can do. But we pray that you would give us that ability and that drive and that vision to do our part, 
to do what we can do. And when we call on you, we know that you can, you will do what we can't do. We thank you and we praise you for the support we have for one another because there is strength in numbers. And what one can do, ten can do more. A hundred can do more. We thank you that you've given us that ability to step out in faith, guided by your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, to do our part in bringing your kingdom to this world. That you can be the God of delivers, that you can be the one who saves, and we don't have to take that part on ourselves. All we need to do is our part to direct people to you, the God of forgiveness, the God of deliverance, the God of salvation. Thank you, Lord. We bless you and we glorify you in Yeshua's name.